Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. Our guest for today is Thomas McMahon, the co-founder and CEO of Air Carbon. Air Carbon is a digital exchange for trading in carbon assets. Now, Thomas, I'm very excited to speak to you. We have had two other episodes on the carbon issue on our podcast earlier on. We had Anton Root, whose company develops research and data for voluntary carbon markets. We had also just a couple of weeks back, Kareem Jabber of Saltstream, who is developing a carbon market for off-grid solar. But you have gone one entire step forward. You have developed a digital exchange for trading in carbon assets. You securitize carbon credits into fungible and tradable securities with transparent pricing and real-time settlement. Let's start by breaking that down. Can we start at the beginning of the cycle and describe some of the carbon credit generating projects that you have worked with? Right. Yep. First of all, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your program. Early days, we were looking at the Corsia compliance under ICAO, uh, International Civilian Aviation Organization, and it would apply to uh, airlines fundamentally. And they had sort of set out a band and said, these are the good delivery credits and the projects that underpin those, like from the Vera registry and the gold standard registry and such. So we had a very clear sort of roadmap of what would be um, deliverable, right, to mitigate uh, aviation carbon. And that was back in, in 2018-19. We've grown substantially beyond that. And I think probably one of the things that has really changed significantly in the last 24 months is one, COVID and environmental awareness. And as a result of it, we're seeing more and more interest in nature-based solutions, which is fairly broad stroke in that, yes, it covers trees, and but there's a lot of other interesting parts to, uh, to that nature theme and for voluntary carbon credits. So we've started to see not only existing projects that have been set up previously, probably the extreme end of that, it's like the Rimbaraya project that was set up back in 2009 in Indonesia, which has all 17 SDG sustainable development goals out of the UN, to newer projects that are now being incubated, you know, change of use, previously logged properties that we're seeing in, across Southeast Asia that are now changing their hats and people are going, we're going to stop the logging and we're going to go to reforestation. So we're dealing with a lot of really interesting opportunities and as, as well as uh, peatland restorations, coastal stability, the uh, reinvigoration of mangroves along the coasts, the awareness of rising sea and tidal issues. So we're dealing with a very, very broad base of industry. And the other extreme is, is the energy transition where you're dealing with the, uh, the oil industry and where are they stepping into this transition to change or mitigate their habits as they switch from you know the dirty end of the barrel potentially to the cleaner end of it uh, in time and they support these projects this is fantastic i mean obviously energy projects so uh, we kind of understand would have been carbon projects but the nature-based projects i think are particularly interesting because as you know the ipcc is going to come up with his the adaptation report in february or march i think we can be rest assured that one of the recommendations will be around ecosystem-based adaptation because nature-based yeah. projects not only help in mitigation, but also adaptation. And that's probably a strong co-benefit. Very true. Yeah. And so let's talk about uh, these projects, you know, either nature-based projects or energy projects and say, how do you now convert the carbon credits into carbon assets? You know, how do you measure? How do you 
make the conversion. It seems um, what I'm really excited to talk to you about is it seems that you use the same technology that is underlying non-fungible tokens. You'll probably have to explain to our audience what this term means before you answer my question. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, let's answer that question first, because it's an important one today, right? So when we started early on in Air Carbon, and we decided that Ethereum would be our smart contract basis. So Ethereum, um, back in in 2017-18, really had very two clear, definable uh, token constructs. One was the ERC-20, which is a fungible token, and the other one was the ERC-721 protocol, which is an NFT, non-fungible token. Back then, we looked at it very clearly of that we wanted to have an asset that had fungibility, right? That it was transferable. It could be basketized, meaning put into a group of of like credits, as opposed to uh, creating an NFT, a non-fungible token, which would be a unique set. So that unique set at that time, the way we looked at it was an NFT or 721 could be applicable to a specific project. That if you're doing an, an Amazon forest project in a specific region, you could actually build a token that was specific to that project. Um, as opposed to the ERC-20 application we saw was that we could take all, all trees within the Amazon and we could build a larger nature uh, basket that wouldn't be specific to a certain methodology and a certain project that it would be that we could cover a larger region. So ERC-20s and 721s are both relevant, but the 20s are the dominant trading one at the moment and 721s have a separate application for verifiability and quality on specific projects. So that's how we, we separate the two. And they're both applicable today. And trust me, we did not foresee that uh, that NFTs would turn into digital artwork by any means. It was, it was just a brilliant accounting and, and regulatory framework that works well for carbon because carbon is a digital asset to begin with, an issued carbon credit. So looking at the, at the different methodologies and a project developer would approach us, and we've had this on a number of different levels. So uh, in terms of a forest, we're working with a group, uh, a project that was registered back in 2016 in Indonesia, and it's a peatland restoration and coastline stability. It's, got, it's a very valuable asset, 150,000 hectares of property. But the prices of carbon four or five years ago were considerably less than they are today. Um, so a lot of project developers had put a lot of capital in, but they didn't have a way to extract their capital in a very efficient manner or to be able to retain a lot of the environmental benefits, which is when you sell a carbon credit, that's your environmental benefit. It's a one-time only and the fees come back to the project developer or the beneficial investors. We That's really the basis for creating the, the exchange was to change the nature of how people transacted voluntary carbon credits in the over-the-counter world to bring it into a a market structure where we had transparent price. The key is to counterparty risk mitigation so that a seller always gets paid. And that's really important. And that the, the buyer gets the product that he anticipates. Uh, that's really the core architecture for the exchange. Fantastic. But um, you also have tokens for you know, cook stoves, renewable energies. And I suppose the peat restoration project is part of the sustainable development tokens. Right. You have um, tokens for aviation. Obviously, architecturally, I suppose these are all similar, right? But, you know, what then would be the differences? Right, right. Yeah, so fundamentally, you're correct. The architecture, the underpinnings and the engines of the exchange and the tokenization, uh, the custody architectures, the trust architectures, settlement, they're all all the same. 
Yeah, the applications at the product level were really important. So until we really came to the market, the way people transacted a carbon credit was sort of the same way as you would buy a painting. You go to an art gallery and you go, oh, I like that painter or I like that painting. The, the value of it is subjective. It's really about what are you willing to pay for it or what is the artist willing to sell it for? And then you take the painting home and you put it on your wall and you go, hmm, the value is in you, right? But it's an opaque price for the most part. There's no standards of pricing. The idea for us was that we realized as we got into the carbon, into the different methodologies and what the demands were for, the, for carbon mitigation going forward, all of those you just mentioned, the cook stoves or, or methane gas capture projects or, or biodiversity, right? blue water carbon, blue carbon, you know, relative to, to, to the sea, they all fit into different categories uh, and they all have different pricing. The demand is really being driven from over the last few years. It was very much on the corporate social responsibility and the marketing side of, of international corporates. Today, that has completely pivoted as a result of COP26 and the demands of ESG compliance and listed exchange regulations. So now it goes to the treasury and the compliance side of corporates, as well as investors. They want to have exposure to this asset class. Um, before they had just sort of like buying a painting, they would find a broker who said, hey, I've got this cook stove project in Malawi, um, and it's supporting this many indigenous villagers, and it really does good things from a sustainable development goal. So people would buy it but there was no secondary marketplace for it. So we have created that secondary marketplace, what we call the household token. And we've done the same thing for nature. So we have two different, we have one called a GNT and one called a GNT plus, and that's global nature. And they fill two different roles. Global nature GNT is just a, a generic forestry project-based token that allows for project developers to bring their projects to the exchange. And we have a set of parameters that defines them going back from 2013 to 2021. And it's a very broad stroke for forestry. GNT plus is a little more specific to vintages where we're seeing the demand and a higher price ability or willingness to invest in newer projects. So those projects are from 2016 forward. So we're, we're seeing a market dividing and we're addressing it accordingly with our different uh, electronic products or tokens. And we continue to expand uh, as the market demand is, is, is shown to us. What you have done is you've taken the carbon credits coming out of energy and nature projects, which were kind of non-standard, created standard sets using both fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens, which have a secondary market and are digital assets, because you know that's something that's uh, probably not so obvious, but when once you said it, it's obvious, right? It's carbon credits are a digital asset. And because it's a standard digital asset, it's now amenable for putting an exchange and secondary transactions to happen on them. Is that the kind of summary so far at least? Yes, and I, I can add to that. The way you get to securitize carbon is, I mean, we are, the registries where the methodologies sit are the ones who actually manage the process of, of verification and issuance of a carbon credit. Where we come in is we take that credit, um, that issued credit, and we bring it into a carbon trust account at each of the registries. So that allows for standards of ownership, uh, protection of the underlying assets for the, for the beneficial owner of the carbon um, at that point in time. And then it creates a standard for transferability, right? So they, the carbon itself sits in the trust account. And then we basically write a smart contract against and create an electronic receipt 
and that receipt is what's tradable on the exchange. And that's the asset-backed token. It's the digital nature of it. By doing that, we've securitized carbon fundamentally, uh, changed the nature of how it can be transacted, owned, and settled. And it can be held within a, uh, a portfolio of assets. So that's the unique shift of how we've represented the carbon credit today. And that's fairly significant. One of the things also do is carbon under regulatory regimes sits in a very unique space, even within the US here in Singapore. The regulators uh, never deemed it a, a tangible asset. It's always been deemed an intangible asset or an intangible commodity. And as a result of it, they have very light regulatory frameworks addressing it. So one of the key shifts that we're going to see uh, going forward is a reclassification of voluntary carbon credits as a commodity. Um, and that'll significantly enhance uh, the value of it in, in terms of how it interacts with the rest of the financial industry and, and how it relates to food, energy, transportation, and such. That's really helpful. So, you know, we've really moved from the set to the exchange. And we started by saying what you do. And so we have now come to the part of the exchange, which provides transparent pricing and real-time settlement. And that you use using a blockchain-based technology. Again, maybe just a few words on what this technology means and what it means for your customers. So in terms of the, the market infrastructure and the, and the digital nature of it, I mean, the you know, exchanges operate fairly similarly in terms of... Uh, you have a front end, you have a, a middle execution end, and then you have the back end. The, the key for us is the ability to verify the beneficial market participants. We have very robust KYC AML standards. The, uh, the way the transaction is settled, um, the key for us was to have really efficient settlement cycles. Blockchain is a wonderful architecture to build that on, managing the underlying assets as well as the payment uh, assets. Currently, fiat is our primary payment source, uh, U.S. dollar settlement structures, and we can do that all in real time, as opposed to a T1 or a T2 or a T3 settlement. So we felt it was very important to bring that robustness uh, to the market from day one, and we've done that. Okay, uh, and how does the blockchain help you do that? Yeah, if you think about Traditional markets architectures, there's, there's multiple players, right? You've got the central marketplace, you've got broker dealers, you've got ISVs, and you've got an extension on an extension on an extension. The blockchain, the beauty of the blockchain, is the market infrastructure sits in one place in time. You don't have a lot of multiple layers that you have to go through. Trade confirmation is in real time. And settlement on chain is we, we're on mainnet. Settlement is um, transparent. And that was very important to us. The dependency on third parties, we do not have a dependency on third parties. So we can encompass not just trade and execution, but settlement cycles are all handled within air carbon on its multiple layers of interface, both our core exchange market architecture, our traditional matching engine, and the mainnet blockchain that we sit on. Uh, so we have full control of that whole cycle. And, and that was very important for us. So as well as the connectivity at, at the ledger architecture of the underlying asset, the carbon on deposit, as well as the balances uh, in all the trading accounts. They're all interoperable in real time. And I understand the benefits, but one concern that has been said about both NFTs running on the Ethereum 
platform that you have and the blockchain uh, technology as well is that it is expensive. This, it is you know, time consuming, right? Yep. Obviously, the technology itself will change over the four or five years. But uh, at this point, how are you addressing that? Or at this point, how is that sort of being mitigated? Well, I mean, I, again, I mean, if you and you're right, scaling is, is an issue, right? Aside from sometimes that you do get congestion, there are there's a continuous evolution of, of especially the, the Ethereum net structures and pushing into ETH2 that will mitigate a lot of those, those issues going forward. It's become a competitive space. So a number of platforms that have made it more viable uh, in, in terms of uh, operating the gas fees. Do you still get congestion points? Absolutely. But because we at the exchange, we can settle in two layers. So we actually a trade when it takes place because again, we have control of the carbon connectivity and the fiat connectivity and the core matching engine. That's not blockchain dependent. The blockchain dependency is really for trade verifiability and for an immutable record. So 99.9% of the time, uh, there's never an issue, right? Uh, we did have some issues this past weekend, as did the whole world, right? There was a lot of congestion with the repricing of, uh, especially of Bitcoin and ETH, but that clears itself up in time. And if it's an additional cost, and it's really just an additional cost, that's absorbed by us. We have it set up to cycle our fees higher uh, in order to always stay at the front end of the chain for settlement. But I think that like all new industries, in time, the efficiencies will come. There's never a security layer issue, though. Right. And I think the point that you made about, you know, multiple competing platforms coming in yep. and perhaps some changes in the Ethereum's policies also, which I believe are due in a, sometime this year, later this year, right? It'll make some of these issues a little bit simpler to handle for application developers like yourself. One thing that our, our audience will be very interested in, in understanding is that the voluntary carbon market is picking up. So how have been the price trends on your exchange? Yeah, well, uh, it's been pretty much a one-way street. It's been quite amazing for me. The, when we first started to look at this, uh, supply outstripped demand uh, just 18 months ago, because that was looking at who would be addressing the market, who would have an interest in investing. At that time, it was really just the transportation industry, aviation specifically, that would look to be having those first mandates of requirements to mitigate. In the last 12 months, it's shifted substantially. I will tell you that when we did our, our alpha and beta back in October of 20, September, October of 20, the average price of a voluntary credit that was Corsia compliant was around 85 cents US. And when we began trading in January of 21, it was still around a dollar, a little bit below a dollar. Today, it's trading $8. It's the best performing asset in the world. And that's the Corsia. And I can tell you that the nature-based solutions that we were bringing into our GNT product at that time were about priced hard. So if, if Corsia was at 85 to 95 cents, the, the nature in January of 21 were $1.05. They traded $16 on Monday. So they're not only far outperforming any other asset in any stock market or any, any digital asset or token, yet most people were not paying a lot of attention to it. And really on two points, one, all of the language around carbon is that carbon should cost more. For the first time, from a policy standpoint, the underlying asset, they wanted it to cost more. And it does two things. One, a higher expense to corporates changes behavior. A higher expense of investment um, leads to better technology. 
and better solutions. So the combination of those two over the last 12 months have taken A, a new asset class to market, but have created the first time a very transparent price where people can invest and they continue to invest. And still, uh, for the most part, people anticipate that the prices even we see today are substantially lower than they'll be in 12 months from now, which is very interesting. Demand continues to grow almost daily. And by 23, uh, the aviation will be back. Uh, shipping industry will start addressing and have demand there. The building industry is they're, they're going to have demand. The broader energy industry, especially in the Middle Eastern region, uh, will have really defined what their carbon footprints are and how they want to mitigate. And they're all looking at the voluntary market as that, that mitigation tool in the transition to either changing the way they do business or until newer technologies come out into carbon removals. And that's really where we're going to move from not just saving the forests, but actually to going into carbon removal and the technologies around it. And there is obviously a lot of talking up of the market uh, yes. by policymakers and business people. And that's what you are seeing. I was just fascinated while you were speaking that you had your alpha and beta 12 months, 14 months back. And I know that you have 200 clients today across 30 countries. So essentially you built all this during the pandemic. Now, I, I know you are background, you know, you have been in the exchange business for a long, long time. It's always yeah. about meeting and greeting people, right? And you have to, yeah. you know, do handshakes and, I don't know, maybe go out for dinner or whatever to do business. It's yeah. been an entirely different way of doing business. Yeah, correct. It's, it was very interesting. I mean, we started a roadshow in November of 19. We were actually in, at Heathrow Airport for the Aviation Carbon Conference and that was for sort of a kickoff for us. And we had a whole schedule ahead of us, right? Starting in, in, uh, in January of 20, we were gonna be multiple places around the world. And that quickly, two months later, we weren't going anywhere as we all know. And yet we're launching this business. I had never done a Zoom meeting. Everybody learned Microsoft Teams and Google Meets and Zoom. What was interesting about it was, it was a little scary having built business really about face-to-face -face confidence and looking into somebody's eyes and their face and, and building a, a good feeling about them. Trying to replicate that on a, on a screen was very unique. But the other side of it was we got to speak to people that I can tell you that I couldn't have flown to enough cities in the world to ever have met them. They became available on, especially on Zoom. We spoke to senior people that would have been very difficult to get into their offices or to, or to get their time because they're committed. Suddenly people had time and people had interest. And they still do. It's not waning because maybe we're going to get back to somewhat normalcy. I don't see that. I, I see the interest actually continue to grow. Uh, environmental awareness really, I think, came out of COVID. Uh, as, as much as we've had a bunch of natural disasters that have woken everybody up alongside of that, really strange weather patterns and such like that. So the combination of the two and the focus that the technology could allow us to have really was almost a blessing for us. And we took full advantage of it. As we've all had to do, you had to learn how to manage your days. Uh, my days are way longer than they would be if I was on a business trip. You know, I, I'll, I'll start at 5.30 in the morning and I'll finish very often at 11 p.m. at night and pace yourself across the day. But I get to talk to two or three different time zones uh, in, in that and engage with people that... Uh, have a like-minded interest or are looking to get into this market or assessing at a at an investor level or a corporate level, or even um, we've got a number of sovereign conversations going on now that we can do over Zoom. We don't have to fly to each other's country to have to, to get engaged in the conversation, which is quite unique. It's been a great learning experience. We've almost been very lucky as a result of this.
You're right. And, you know, you know, speaking for myself, uh, we started this podcast just during the pandemic because, you know, that's offers an opportunity to talk to people. But my follow-up question is 200 clients, 30 countries, you have to tell us some stories about how your customers benefited. It's, it's, and it's interesting. We didn't anticipate to have so many, and these are member firms. So everybody who joins the exchange is a member. Um, it's not just a, a customer. So it's quite unique. So companies are building behind us. They're, you've got a single entity facing us and they've got multiple accounts behind it, which is, and they're learning how to manage these new product lines, which is, which is quite interesting. For me, coming out of the commodity trading industry and, and having worked not just in the U.S., but in a number of countries, you build relationships over time, right? Uh, I've traded the energies, I've traded the metals markets, I've been in the steel industry, a lot of different things. What's interesting now is I've got people that maybe I haven't had engaged in 10 or 15 years, right? A previous product or a previous relationship that are all now getting focused. So a number of these firms um, that I hadn't even thought of, uh, have come to us and said, hey, we read about what you're doing. We want to get involved. We want to expand our universe. We want to deal with environment. It's quite interesting. Some of it too, though, is funny. Like I can tell you two years ago, we approached a number of large multinationals thinking uh, that they would be at that stage where they needed to address their ESG uh, requirements. So we know that we're part of that solution, just a piece. We're in the E part of ESG. It was interesting two years ago, a year and a half ago, they were ill-equipped to do it. They have maybe a chief sustainability officer or environmental officer, but they didn't have any any bandwidth on hedging or investing. So it's sort of like, hey, thanks very much, but uh, we'll get back to you. And you don't expect them to get back. Well, they're getting back to us. And that's probably even the more interesting thing that they're reaching out to us now after a long period of quiet where now they're catching up to where we are. I didn't necessarily think I was going to be a leader, but I've turned out to be, we're, we're setting some precedents and sort of leading it as opposed to standing alongside or following. It's been a, been a bit of a compliment for us. So we've got a very diverse 200 plus member firm makeup. So, you know, obviously you've talked a lot about the aviation industry, right? Maybe just, you know, with an example, try and illustrate to us, you know, how some of the aviation industry members have benefited. Yeah, aviation is quite interesting. I mean, when we, again, you know, this sort of began with the Corsia, uh, our initial assessment was, especially from a Singapore perspective, if all we did was address the, uh, the 2019, 18, 19 numbers of the 132 million passengers that flew through Changi Airport in, in 2019, and, and then looking at the international transportation across, if all we did was look here, Dubai and, and Istanbul, they accounted for a staggering number of, A, international aviation flyers, but also the carbon footprint because of the long-haul flights. We said, well, there's a market, right? And who were going to be the market? It was going to be aviation and their compliance to the Corsia, ICAO uh, requirements, their compliance requirements. What we found very quickly was they were not equipped to do it. The way the aviation industry is set up is... Obviously, it's about putting, I went at a senior executive at a meeting two years ago before COVID, and he said, he goes, the only thing I care about is putting bums in seats. This carbon thing, no, it's a cost. I, I, don't, I don't know how to deal with it. And we had a solution for them. They were really not equipped to do it. And then COVID happened. Now, interestingly, January 21, reporting period began for aviation. So they've been given a free pass, as it is now, but that's not going to be there forever. Now they're trying to play catch up. And the interesting thing there was if they had addressed it back in 2019-20, pre-COVID, they could have hedged themselves, which is traditionally what aviation does. They hedge themselves with jet fuel or manage their leases in their, for their aircraft. And they didn't hedge themselves for carbon. And if they had, they would have been hedged at a dollar or $2. They're going to come into this marketplace 8, 10, 12, 14x to that when they finally do step in to start hedging. 
and they do have to hedge from 23 to 25. Part of what they're trying to do is to address it from uh, basically clean aviation fuel, um, NAV, but there's not enough of it being made. And that's really a marketing exercise as opposed to a reality. So the voluntary market is going to become very important to aviation going forward, uh, but it's going to be a very high cost. Could have been mitigated if they had prepared themselves earlier. Only a few did. KLM was probably really the leader. Qantas out of Australia was very proactive. Uh, very few of the American airlines were. Asian airlines really couldn't quite figure out what they needed to do. They were really just dealing with their jet fuel costs. They weren't looking at it anywhere beyond that. So it's going to be a very interesting marketplace. Other industries have been more proactive. The shipping industry has actually been more proactive than the aviation industry in starting to adopt it. And the IMO, which is their equivalent to ICAO, has only set a standard around low sulfur fuel, um, no requirement for carbon mitigation. But a number of the shipping companies um, and globally are really becoming proactive, especially around the LNG and the crude oil, carbon neutrality, really what they're trying to achieve on a case-by-case basis. They're stepping in um, a little more proactively than aviation is. Interesting shift. Interesting, absolutely. Companies will have to put carbon as a strategic focus. Yes. But you also have member companies in the, from the financial industry, right? And I'm very curious to understand uh, how they sort of work w- with the exchange. Yeah, I mean, so if you divide the exchange into the buy side, sell side, right? So the the financial industry has really entered it from the buy side. So part of it has been, especially energy or power industry entities, right? Um, And I mean, every major bank, all the big trading companies, uh, the Glentors, the VTOLs, the traffickers of the world, Shell, um, Chevron, Exxon, they've all been in the news about their building, whether it's investing in projects or how they're using voluntary credits to mitigate right, or offset uh, the requirements. That industry, if you look at the pure trading side of it, they're now building big carbon desks. They're re-entering a market that actually, they were here 10 years ago. After Lehman Brothers and by 2012, the expiration of the UN protocols um, not being able to be utilized up against the European ETFs, the market went very quiet. So most of the major financials, major banks shut down their carbon trading desks, kept their commodities desks live and their financial markets live, but and now they're reacquiring those assets and re-entering the market. So we have a number of these major firms that have come in uh, up against their, their energy uh, trading desks and their power trading desks. They're adding carbon to it. Others are coming in because they're in the financing end of industries that now has a, either an ESG requirement as a listed company or as they've got a carbon footprint on their scope two and scope three requirements that they need to mitigate against their loan portfolios. Uh, or the real estate investment trusts. They have all got carbon exposure. Looking for solutions, and they've identified us as one of the solution potentials at an exchange level. Yeah, again, we found ourselves a little bit ahead of the curve of some very sophisticated entities that are now realizing that they do need to be in this space a little more proactively. I think what I'm finding interesting as you speak is how these financial institutions had carbon trading dress the time of the Quota Protocol, and then things just went quiet. Yes. If I were a pessimist, I would say we probably lost a decade, but there's not the time to be a pessimist. And <laughs> these people are coming, <laughs> coming yeah. back and True. coming back. And you know, it's great that you are able to offer this something which is far more sophisticated today than what one could have imagined five years or three years back. Mm. Which actually brings me to you know, something that you were talking about earlier, the partnerships that you have done with UNFCC. You know, could, could you tell us a little bit about you know, your overall partnership strategy and how that will uh, play out over the next foreseeable future? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. The UN was a very key one for us. I mean, that's the beginning, right? If, if we look at the carbon market architecture as we know it today, it began there. 
right? And back in the 90s, being part of their ecosystem, we're the, we're the only second exchange that's ever been allowed into that universe for settlement. Uh, so it's quite a compliment to us and we appreciate it very much. Strategically, they're not the only one, I guess is the best way to put it. The key for us is to continue to build these relationships. Um, another one that we've done, so I was up at, uh, I had the privilege of attending COP26 in Glasgow. And um, while we were there, we uh, announced our, we have partnered with the the state of Rio de Janeiro and the city of Rio to set up a, a carbon marketplace for Brazil to take the a number of the attributes of air carbon and apply them to the Brazilian market, uh, to the regional market. We've had a number of those requests to bring our core market architecture, our rules, regs, the trading and settlement architecture. We have an auction system also that's applicable and to bring it to a regional area. We've got a number of those conversations ongoing. Um, so it'll be a series of announcements in, that will support country level emissions trading uh, venues for them. And that's the beauty of the blockchain, the portability of it, that it's replicatable uh, fairly efficiently. So it's key for us to build those relationships, um, as well as also too, we're now speaking to a number of very large uh, projects. A couple of them are in the million plus hectares. Uh, those are country level projects. Um, they want us to bring our expertise to assist them to start their registration and certification process. The end goal for us is in us assisting them and giving them lending our expertise is that we want to see their, their carbon traded on our exchange when they finally are credits. And that could be three and five years down the road. Um, it's not necessarily tomorrow. So again, building that relationship of trust within the, the, the broader carbon market infrastructure is really important. So going all the way back to the UNFCCC and being part of their their structure for trading and settlement certified credits is important, as well as building the trust at country level, sovereign level, and uh, and larger project level for the future. This is, uh, you know, to me, extremely surprising and almost counterintuitive. I obviously don't know anything about exchanges, but what I yeah. do know is that exchanges are very, very local. In Cotton Exchange, uh, the yeah. New York Stock Exchange, the Singapore Exchange, the Tokyo Exchange. But what you're doing is almost the other way around. One underlying exchange going in for international expansion. Is this at all I mean typical? No, <laughs> I shouldn't say it's not, it's aspirational. Do exchanges grow organically to have global footprints? Absolutely. I mean, you look at the size of ICE or the CME, and, but you're, you're correct. They grow usually regionally. The unique opportunity here is twofold. One, carbon is borderless. I mean, it, we probably for the first time in history actually have a product that doesn't know borders. So as a result of it, the standards that got to be, that need to be applied, whether it's from a regionally incubated project, a mitigation requirement at country level or industry level, we're buying and selling the same underline. So one ton of CO2 is exactly the same in China as much as it is in Argentina. There is no difference. It's what is what is producing the carbon, the CO2 can be unique. The mitigation is a standard. So that's the methodologies that have been developed, you know, with the registries, with the likes of Vera and and gold standard and or UNF, triple C, and the other, there's a num number of subsets of, of other regionalized registries, but the methodology is all aiming at the same, same goal, either the mitigation, uh, sequestration or removal of one ton of CO2. And so that's really what's given us the opportunity to, to really build a global marketplace and the technology. Uh, the portability of the blockchain is brilliant in that respect. It's very replicatable.
Right. So it is both the nature of the commodity and the technology with which building the uh, sort of digital assets, the as well as the underlying exchange technology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, probably one other point too. The significant difference between Kyoto and the UN first go round, and where it is that you really had 47 major countries under the Kyoto. Today you have 195, and they include India and China, who were not part of the, the going back into the first decade of carbon. So that's significantly different. You have the willingness of every country in the world. That's the difference, right? Um, so the participants have a willingness to, to participate, where there was some resistance in the, the first decade of the 2000s. Right. I mean, it's easy to forget that. But, uh, but in the 1990s, it was climate problem was the problem created and therefore needed to be solved by a certain yes. group of people. Today, clearly, it is, uh, there can be still politics around it, but it's oh. clearly a problem that everybody uh, has to solve. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's in everybody's best interest at this point. Yeah, it's, it, it's past that critical point of it, that it's somebody else's problem. It isn't. It's everybody's problem. And I think that's a significant difference at this point in time. We are then the podcast and, you know, I'll have to ask you one question. You've lived, worked all over the world, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about life in Singapore and how being in Singapore has helped you also build a business and also a little bit about yourself. And do you, for example, eat in food court? <laughs> we, we do. We, uh, yeah, we, we enjoy the local food. We love hawker centers. Um, food is great. Yeah, Singapore is very unique. You know, when people come to Asia, very often you get the challenges of languages, right? Um, and uh, Singapore is is so multicultural and, and, and really the core language here is, is spoken language is English, along with all of the other iterations of the Asian languages. So most people are multilingual, which is wonderful. The talent pool is great. Um, the government, I think, is probably the most unique part, which Singapore Inc. has developed really from an incubator perspective. They've got a really stable society of five plus million people. But the agency level interaction internationally um, and are willing to support um, startups as much as venture capitalists, as much as attracting uh, mature industries that wouldn't necessarily have been, come to Southeast Asia. And they, they attract them here and support them. So I think that's really unique about Singapore. Lifestyle, well, it's summer all the time. So <laughs> you don't have to have a big wardrobe. So that's sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But the uh, yeah, generally it's been uh, it's a great experience. I think, as we all know, everybody's been challenged during COVID, and you know for twenty plus months Singapore basically was closed. But they managed that process well. Um, so hats off to the to the government. Every government is is having that challenge today. But Singapore Inc is really working hard, very supportive of what we're doing. Singapore Green Plan. Uh, their environmental plan through for 2030 goals is, is very intact. And uh, they really are very supportive of incubating a new industry, anything around sustainability, whether it's from a technology or financialization, bond market developments, transportation infrastructure. They're, they're really very focused on it because they live on an island. So they know the challenges that are ahead for them. Yeah, it's been a, been a great adventure. Excellent. With that, thank you very much, Thomas. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you.